Hey, I'm Kerry Jr. the second, and this is the Detroit Free Press's weekly podcast on the line. Before we get into this week's episode, we want to look ahead to next week and the November 2nd election taking place. Metro Detroit has some pretty big jobs and issues on the ballot. There's the mayor, city council, the clerk, and the police board of commissioners race in Detroit. Not to mention proposals. One that would create a reparations task force, another that would decriminalize therapeutic use of hallucinogenic plants, and one more that would let residents set city spending by ballot initiative. Also, nearby ballots include mayors and council members in other Metro Detroit cities. So ahead of next week, we want to remind you to check out Freep.com to get up to speed. Detroiters can even enter their address into our election guide to see exactly what's on their ballot, thanks to a partnership between the Free Press and Bridge Detroit. You can check that out at freep.civicengine.com. That's F-R-E-E-P dot And make sure you go out and vote. All right. Now for today's story. Hello. This is a prepaid call from... Joanne. A prisoner at the Michigan Department of Corrections, Ken Ross Facility. To accept this call, press zero. Hello. Mr. Deering, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Perfect. That's Free Press reporter Alicia Anderson talking with Juwan Deering. Juwan's been in prison for 15 years. A lot of people who are listening to you talking, uh, you know, on an episode once we put something out, will have never spent a day in prison in their entire life uh, or have no idea what it's like behind those bars. Can you walk us through what a normal day looks like for you, what, what prison life is like? Well, it's repetitive. <laughs> Let me tell you that. Um, and you wake up around hundreds of individuals. Um, you're crowded. You also have to, you know, endure being told what to do, being told when to eat, what time to eat. Uh, it's something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, you know. <laughs> Someone that's innocent, no, uh, shouldn't be in places like this and shouldn't have to endure such degradation, you know, segregation. Juwan Deering was convicted back in 2006 of starting a house fire in Royal Oak Township, one in which five children died. But Juwan has said since day one that he's innocent. And the key part of his case is one under national scrutiny for how the justice system uses incarcerated people against each other. Today, we'll be discussing the case of Juwan Deering, the jailhouse informants that helped put him away, and his journey toward freedom. I'm Kerry Jr. II, and this is On the Line from the Detroit Free Press. So, Alicia, where does our story begin? We have to go back to April of 2000. That's when the fire broke out at a home in Royal Oak Township. It's the 6th of April, just before midnight, at a two-story house off of 8 Mile on the corner of Mitchelldale and Pasadena Avenues in Oakland County. There were two families in the home that night, Marie Dean, who lived in the house with her children, and there was also a family that rented some of the space on the second floor. Michelle Freeman, an 11-year-old girl, lived up there with her father. There was an interview done with Marie Dean shortly after the fire. She described waking up and hearing a scream from one of her children. She also described hearing calls of mommy from some of the children who were in the house. 
Uh, smoke increased heavily. She was trying to help get her children to safety. Another one of the children was also trying to get the children to safety. They had moved toward the back of the house where the fire was less intense. Um, eventually, the smoke became too heavy. Many of the people in the house were overcome with smoke that night, and they had to be rescued from inside. Five children died in that fire. There was Talia at age 10, Craig age 8, Aaron age 7, Michelle Frame. She was 11 years old. And Eugene, who was 6, he just turned 6 that day of the fire. Uh, none of those children made it out, out of the house fire alive. The fire was deemed an arson, and investigators developed a suspect. The sheriff's office did have a suspect. That person was not named in the story, but he was described. A 29-year-old man who was behind bars for an unrelated crime. Uh, it didn't say the name of the person, but that would fit the description of Jawan Deering. So who, who was Jawan Deering then? In August, we talked to Jawan while he was in prison and asked him a little bit more about this period of his life. I was in my late 20s, I think. I was living in Detroit at the time. Jawan's grandma lived in that neighborhood, and he knew most of the people in the neighborhood in passing. Jawan has admitted he was a drug dealer. When you come from backgrounds where I come from, you only have a few choices. And you always have the choice to do the right thing. But sometimes um, financial situations turns us to do things that, you know, I'm becoming of a character. It's not right. It's uh, something that, you know, that if I could change, I would do it a different way. But, hey, it's... Uh, I did the street thing, you know, and I made money off the street. And that lifestyle came into play for investigators as it related to the father of most of the children. He was known as Big Mike, and the theory became he was a drug user who had a drug debt. The prosecution's theory was Deering set the fire to send a message, and as a result of that fire being set, uh, five children died. The case went to trial in 2006 uh, in Oakland County Circuit Court. Why did it take six years for Juan Deering to be charged? From 2000 to 2006, there was turnover at the prosecutor's office. A person who had previously said that he wasn't going to charge because there wasn't enough evidence, in his opinion, no longer was with the office. At that point, cases that he had refused to charge previously were reviewed, and that's what led to these charges being issued six years later. It wasn't that there was a lot more evidence. It was there was a difference of opinion on if there was enough evidence to take it to trial. He was charged with um, arson and, and five counts of felony murder. The jury found him guilty. Deering's case, that was over a decade ago. Why are we talking about it now? Good question. So fast forward to this year. Karen McDonald, the newly elected prosecutor, is in office. Deering's attorneys asked her to review the case. The cause of the fire still is being disputed. It's one of the things that led to a review of the case to begin with this year. Another fire investigator was hired by Deering's attorney, the Innocence Clinic, and that's out of the University of Michigan Law School. And they said you can't deem this fire an arson at all. They say that um, faulty science, or sometimes it's called junk science, was used. But it was the details about some jailhouse informants that caught McDonald's eye. She became concerned pretty quickly because her initial review showed that these three jailhouse informants that testified against Deering, they were pretty crucial to the prosecution's case. Uh, a couple of the jailhouse informants were actually planted in the same jail cell, and they testified to things that the jailhouse informants said that Deering told them during their time behind bars together. 
for example, one of the jailhouse informants said Deering told him he didn't mean for those kids to die. The use of jailhouse informants isn't unusual, and that was true in Oakland County. However, McDonald was troubled by what jurors were not told about these individuals. She found some information showing that those three jailhouse informants who testified against Deering, they received breaks in their own cases, and jurors didn't hear that. They didn't know about these breaks. What do you mean by breaks? Benefits. So sometimes jailhouse informants are scrutinized more because they have something that they can gain from testifying. They may receive something while they're behind bars, something as little as better food, a different placement in jail, or something as large as years knocked off their their conviction or cases dismissed altogether for their cooperation on a different case. People want to know, if you were getting something for your cooperation, are you telling the truth? It just blew my mind. You know, I was stunned. I was shocked that a human being can do something to another human being that he don't even know, you know, or tell a lie against a person that he doesn't even know. And uh, you never really know the gravity of it, the reality of it, till it happens to you. And when it happens to you, um, it's like the world around you just, you know, collapses. If there's something that goes to the credibility of a testifying witness, it's supposed to be disclosed, but that doesn't always happen. I think it was about May. That's May 2021. Where the prosecutor issued a press release. She was concerned that uh, Mr. Deering's constitutional rights to a fair trial were impacted. And so County Prosecutor McDonald sought aid to better understand what happened. She, as a result, hired a outside lawyer, uh, Beth Morrow, to investigate the case and the case was investigated then for about three months before the special prosecutor issued her report um, about what she found in this case when she gave it a second look. The prosecutor's office makes that report public and also holds a press conference. All right. <clears throat> Good morning. Thank you all for being here. I'm here this morning because... And during that press conference, Karen McDonald said what the special prosecutor found is, quote, extremely troubling. In those files there was important information that was not disclosed to the defense and that the jury never heard. She said uh, there was an interview with one of the children who survived the fire. He was in the house when it broke out. And during that interview, this child who was 13 at the time, he was shown pictures, almost like a photo lineup is what the prosecutor would say. And he identifies a person named Jawan in the lineup, and he says that Jawan didn't do it. Why that's so important is because the defense never had that information. So the kid was saying that there were two Jawans, and one of the Jawans that he heard the voice of before the fire was not the Jawan who he saw a picture of. You couldn't see the pictures, but the indication is the picture was Jawan Deering. The second thing that's very important that she said in her report is the jury was misled about the informant's motives and credibility in this case. The special prosecutor found that Juwan Deering did not get a fair trial, and she's right. She has recommended that his conviction and sentence be vacated, and I agree with her. I'm committed to doing the right thing, and this is the right thing. After the break, this Juwan and the progress of his case. All right. Hey, Carlos, just a quick idea. How about if I say, hey, this is Sean Windsor and 
you say, hey, this is Carl from Mars, and I'll go, and then we'll go back. You want, you want to try that? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. You ready? Yep. Hey, this is Sean Windsor. And this is Carlos Menares. And we are the team behind Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean, where we are going to talk about, you guessed it, sports, but lots of other stuff. Like what, Carlos? Oh, we're going to talk about your favorite subject, Sean, food. Um, probably more food. Arts, culture, sports, TV, movies, you name it. If it's happened in Detroit, we're going to talk about it. And sometimes we're going to have guests in who obviously know a lot more than we do about just about everything. But we're going to have some free press journalists to talk about big stories, folks from the sports world. We're going to be out every Thursday. You can find this podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. We hope you'll join us. And we're back. When we left off, Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald had just shared the details of a special report on the mishandlings in Juwan Daring's case, from withheld information to jailhouse informants. So, Alicia, what happens after the county prosecutor presents that report? The report came out at the end of August. On September 21st, the parties go back to court. A judge ultimately has to make the decision whether he's going to toss the convictions or not. Uh, so, Alicia, did you attend that first hearing? Yeah, I was there. And McDonald has pretty strong words that she says in court that day. She said, quote, there was prosecutorial misconduct. Critical evidence was buried in prosecutor and investigative files, she told the judge. The judge at that hearing, Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Jeffrey Mattis, he ruled that Deering was deprived of fair trial and he overturned Deering's murder and arson convictions that day. So you know this is a huge victory for him. Now there's still a hurdle. He did not allow him to get out of prison though. He was still facing those charges until prosecutors decided whether they were going to dismiss those charges altogether or retry him. Did they pursue dismissing the charges or did they, did they pursue a, a new trial? Um, so they held another court hearing the following week and that was what people were waiting for. What was it like in the courtroom that day? We return the next week. Deering comes out. He's dressed a little differently this time. Uh, Today he's wearing a suit. He's still got his handcuffs on. He goes and sits down. Prosecutor McDonald, she's back. Uh, She's going to say a few words to the the judge. In the hearing last week, I asserted that Juwan Deering's constitutional rights were violated, that he did not receive a fair trial, and that his conviction should be vacated. She tells the judge that she was announcing that she's dismissing charges against Deering. In order to make this determination, Your Honor, I convened a group of 12 experienced law enforcement professionals last week, including some of the most experienced prosecutors in my office and four Michigan State Police investigators. The group concluded unanimously that there was not sufficient credible evidence to charge Mr. Deering. And she said that the investigation had been totally compromised by, quote, misconduct that occurred between the time of the fire in 2000 through the trial in 2006. The judge on the case, Judge Mattis, ordered Deering released from custody as soon as possible. Since the prosecution has decided not to seek a second trial and has chosen not to prosecute or proceed with this matter, and on the basis of the motion that was made by the prosecutor, this court notes that this case will be dismissed without prejudice. Um, he walked out of the same door he had walked out of, I don't know, 15 minutes earlier. When he walked out this time, the handcuffs were gone, and uh, he was a free man. Hey, how, how you How you feeling? I'm, I'm all right. How you doing? At that point, 
I just opened up my iPhone and asked him a couple questions on, on video. And the question, the first question is usually the same for anybody in his situation. So what's next? What's next for you? Uh, something good to eat. <laughs> in this case, it's his answer was eat something. He wanted food, good food, after being in prison all those years, and also spend time with his family. Okay, so, so Deering walks out of the courthouse now. You see him. Uh, what happens after that? It's kind of interesting. The sun was shining really bright that day. And there was a group of supporters uh, who came to kind of rally around him. These are other exonerees who have spent years, decades in prison. There were uh, family members there. He had a daughter who brought, I think, four of his grandchildren with her. And he had never met some of his grandchildren before because he's been in prison since they've been alive. Uh, he walks out. There's people clapping as he's walking out. His daughter rushes, runs to hug him, and then his family members just embrace. Uh, there is a long embrace where they're, they're hugging, the sun is shining, photographers are taking pictures. I think I am taking video showing what's going on at this point. And there's just a moment of, of them hugging before people ask, what, what's going through your mind? And he said, he's just so happy. He's happy to be free. Yeah, this was a driver for us to see my family and, and all the ones I love again. And, you know, I never stop, never give up. That's For right. all those in the same positions, keep fighting. Remember that God is the ultimate decision maker. One thing that sometimes people want to know after a person walks out is, how are you feeling? Are you mad about what happened? Are you angry about what happened to you? And oftentimes you hear the same thing, and that was the case in, in, with Deering. He said he's grateful. And I can't be upset or angry because it doesn't do anything, but causes uh, you to look ugly on the outside and make you sick on the inside. Welcome home. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Thanks. Welcome home, bro. So if Deering didn't do this, did someone else set the fire? That's a question that other people probably have, too. And it's something that Deering's attorney addressed outside shortly after his client walked free. I think this case went wrong because um, not having evidence to convict someone, uh, police and prosecutors went to something um, that they were too used to doing, which is incentivizing someone to give them evidence, to create evidence that, that isn't true. Uh, and the immense tragedy of this case, the prosecutor described some of that today, which is that a family lost uh, many children, two families lost children, and, um, you know, that's only compounded when uh, an innocent man is wrongfully convicted of a fire that most likely was an accident. Deering's attorney talked about some of the issues with his client's case, and one of those issues is the use of jailhouse informants. It's not just a problem in Michigan. It's also a problem nationally. We've seen numerous convictions overturned that have used jailhouse informants. As part of my reporting over the summer, I talked to Rebecca Brown. She's director of policy for the Innocence Project, which is based in New York. The Innocence Project is a national organization dedicated to freeing the innocent through largely post-conviction DNA testing and also working to prevent future miscarriages of justice uh, through policy reform. She actually pulled some statistics, and the statistics show that the use of jailhouse informants is a huge contributing factor to wrongful convictions nationwide. They are, frankly, most prominent um, in uh, capital cases and death cases because they're often used to fill in for a lack of evidence to really help to, you know, 
finalize that conviction. But that said, they are also really used, you know, quite frequently in other non-capital cases. Um, there are 210 known wrongful convictions that were predicated at least in part on jailhouse informants. And, and we know that it hits about 15% of the DNA-based exoneration cases. So, you know, it's, it's, a, contribu- it's a large contributing cause and, um, and it's problematic. It's, you know, inherently unreliable evidence. Some of the reporting we did this summer looked at this issue. Uh, Wayne County, they, their prosecutor's office has had a conviction integrity unit up and running for several years now, I think since 2018. In that time, they have overturned somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 convictions. Seven of those cases, or nearly one in four, involve a jailhouse informant. It's an issue that people in Michigan are aware of and they're looking at. And there's also been safeguards that have been put in place in other parts of the United States to try to address this issue. And did Rebecca Brown speak to what those safeguards are? Yeah, so one of the things that's being uh, implemented in states across the country is um, a database of jailhouse informants. When did a jailhouse informant testify? What did they testify to? How many times have they testified? So, you know, to really improve the transparency about previous cases in which the informant witness testified, each prosecutor's office should really be required to maintain a central record of each case in which it uses a jailhouse witness's testimony and the benefits that were offered to them. So if you have a jailhouse informant that testifies multiple times, even within the same county, if it's a large county, sometimes one prosecutor in an office might not know that another prosecutor in the office has used the same person. And so that starts to get into really slippery grounds because you're supposed to let a jury know if there's something that would go to their credibility. And if they're cooperating so much that they are getting deals in another case, it starts to become the, the lines start to get blurred on why you're getting the deal. Why else should people care about this case? You know, I think anytime there's an injustice in the justice system, it's important. People can find maybe a way that it won't happen to somebody else down the road. And another reason is it can cost taxpayers a lot of money. When you look into laws that have been passed in Michigan, there's been a law that was passed in a way to try to compensate exonerees for time that they've lost. The law is called the Wrongful Imprisonment Compensation Act. And the way it works is people in Michigan who have been who qualify, who have been wrongfully incarcerated for years or decades, they can sue the state. And um, they're paid $50,000 for every year they spent in prison if they qualify. For Deering, he's not filed a lawsuit yet, but for Deering, that could mean $750,000 for the time he spent in prison for 15 years. So what what are Juwan Deering's next steps? What's next for him in his life? We were able to sit down with him about a week after he was released from prison. My name is Juwan Deering, and I just got a, out of a, a wrongful conviction of uh, being locked up 15 and a half years. He's become a person who has been recognized when he was out and about. He went from being a person who was labeled a child killer behind bars for for 15 years to a person that people have seen and and thought he was done wrong and who have asked to take pictures with him. What he called himself was a symbol of change and hope for others. If I could be that for them, uh, that's cool. If I could just be that symbol of hope of change that's coming in our justice system, then I will stand with that. I will will take that help. He really enjoys the basic things, you know, even things as simple as getting water out of the refrigerator, listening to live music. It's unbelievable to do these things again on my own without being told what time I can do it, what time I can sleep, 
what time I could take a shower, or what time I can walk outside. There's nothing I can say that uh, is, 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 that can uh, top this right now. So. But the one thing he said, too, was he hasn't been able to stop smiling. He still feels the happiness that he felt when he walked out of that courthouse, you know, at the end of September. The future holds a great, bright, bright future. Um, we're going to take it day by day. <laughs> day by day, you know. Can't jump ahead of things. I never know what tomorrow brings. But I know that I'm going to keep fighting and I'm keep trying to get my message out there and change certain systems around the country, hopefully. Well, Alicia Anderson, thank you for your time and your excellent reporting on this. Anytime. Multiple investigations remain underway in the Deering matter. A Michigan State police probe is ongoing. The original prosecutor on the case retired, but his cases from his last employer, the Attorney General's office, are still under review. The AG's office says they found no problems thus far. The Oakland County Sheriff's Office is reviewing their involvement, and the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office is in the process of setting up a conviction integrity unit. In addition, the Prosecutor's Office now limits its use of jailhouse informants, and when they use them, the office now tracks that. Thank you to Free Press reporter John Wisely, who also helped report this story. This episode was produced by me, Darcy Moran, and Tad Davis. Anjanette Delgado and Marianne Struman are our executive producers, and Peter Batia is our editor. The music for the show was called Fort Trumbull and was produced by DJ Lost Boy. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, leave a rating and subscribe. It really makes a difference. All right. See you next week.